In 2017, I published a short book called Creep, A Life, A Theory, An Apology. In it, I interwove personal narrative and cultural analysis to explore what it means to be a creep. I drew on my own personal experiences growing up gay in the Deep South, where I was often made to feel that I was a creepy kid in the 1980s. But I also looked at examples from literature and popular film and media to see how people who are identified as creeps are often viewed, sometimes with horror and sometimes with sympathy. After all, who among us hasn't felt a bit creepy at times? This podcast draws from stories and examples in my original book. In these episodes, we will explore different aspects of what it means to be creepy. A warning, don't be surprised if you're listening to this podcast. While for many of us, the specter of the creep can be threatening, it can also be a bit exciting. Exciting perhaps in the possibility of threat. Yes, we get creeped out, but we are also fascinated by creeps perhaps in part because we all sense the potential inside ourselves to be creepy. Number one. I'm sitting in a hipster coffee shop. Excuse me, it's a coffee lab. Not far from my home in Irvine, California. Like most days, the sun is peeking over the mountains through some morning ocean fog, and the traffic has already started to accumulate. For over a year now, I've gotten up early to head with my laptop and fetch an overpriced cup of coffee, offering myself the best hours of the day for writing. This coffee shop is one of the ones I frequent. The coffee is actually very good, and the baristas, all young folks with their careful haircuts and corded pants, just a touch of blocky plaid creating contrast with the sculpted curves of facial hair. Well, they've gotten to know me. Somewhat. At first, they seemed hesitant. I'm not the usual clientele. I'm nearly 50, and while I can dress well, I've often shown up here in my sweatpants and a t-shirt, baseball cap not quite keeping the stray curls of my long forehead hair in check. I must look unkempt at best on those days. But the coffee jockeys have become accustomed to me, and some familiarity has lessened their intuitive contempt. I take my $4 cup of coffee, something called alchemistic, which is some mornings stunningly good, the hot water sifted in some magical way through the specialty coffee and a fancy machine made by a company called Alpha Dementia that only makes these machines for upscale coffee shops. I take that $4 cup of coffee and head around the corner of the coffee bar to write. It's just a little after 7 a.m. and the place will slowly fill up within the hour. No one will talk to me. Probably a combination of my sitting here typing on this machine, but also my obvious misplacement. Which one of these is not like the other? The lesson is well ingrained. A young guy, immaculately coiffed with what I call precision hair, can flirt with the baristas, male or female, and keep coming back day after day, a welcome sight. He's a good-looking dude and another regular like me, someone I sometimes see pulling up to the shop in his sporty little blue Mini Cooper. I have neither his youth nor good looks, the winning combination. But I've come to know my place as I sit here typing away. 
I do try at times to be friendly, to approach the generational barrier, to peek at what's on the other side. It's not easy, though. I once asked to see a young woman's hand tattoo as she set a cup of coffee down in front of me, and she looked at me as though I'd slapped her. She showed me, but it was weird. I try to remember that this is the generation of trigger warnings, and it's often a hair trigger, easily set off. My showing up here isn't part of their curated world. I'm the oddball out, as we used to say. Indeed, odd doesn't capture it. I begin to worry that my presence here is creepy. These kids want to serve one another, be seen with one another, not be on display for me. I'm intruding. And in forcing them to accommodate themselves to me, I'm acting a bit strange, and I know it. But maybe I'm overstating the case. Maybe I'm just feeling my years as never before. After all, I'm easily double the age of most people here, sitting with my laptop, pounding away at the keyboard, letting loose an unexpected chortle as I write my way into some insight that is probably only fascinating to me. They might think I'm autistic, or worse, lonely. But I return, perhaps masochistically, to buy the expensive coffee in this place in which I don't quite fit in. I take out my phone to check text messages. Often the usual various friends pinging me, one in particular from Ohio, a former colleague and dearly loved soul who, just a few years older than I, has been diagnosed with MS. We enjoy quick regular chats, often daily, continuing to be a part of each other's lives, if only for moments at a time. She can't walk anymore, can't work, and can barely read, so little messages from 2,000 miles away help keep her at least somewhat connected to the world. Frankly, they do the same for me. She's been such a part of my life for the past 20 years. Then I look through my photos. I'm always taking shots of things that interest me. One of the baristas, one I'm a little bit attracted to, comes around and bends down right in front of me, scouting out something beneath the counter. I hear the fumbling as I watch his ass bob up and down with the search. It's so quick, I barely notice that I'm snapping a pic of his behind. And again, the phone doesn't make a sound. He finds what he's looking for and walks away, but not before looking over his shoulder to ask me if the alchemistic is okay. Yes, yes, it is. Thank you. And I realize, oh, fuck, I'm a total creep. I don't delete the picture. This is a story about being creepy. It's part memoir, part analysis, and part explanation. It's not a defense. I am creepy at times, no doubt. And if eventually I'm going to work towards an apology, I mean that in the old sense of apologia, the old genre, somewhere between an impassioned defense, think Socrates, that early Athenian creep accused of corrupting youth and consequently sentenced to death, and a recognition of having erred, if defiantly, because I think my creepiness needs, if not defense, at least some accounting that invites you to understand how I became creepy, how I understand myself as creepy, why others might think so, and why ultimately I make peace with my own creepiness. Or at least try to. 
This writing, like most writing, is the making piece. I worry, like any writer, that perhaps what I'm really doing, though, is just making pieces, pieces that won't cohere. But I can't worry too much about that at this point. I have needed to let the writing, in a word, creep toward meaningfulness. Like many of us, in fact, especially if you are listening to this, you might be wondering if you are a creep, or perhaps you've creeped yourself out at times, or more likely been creeped out by someone else. Creepiness, after all, fascinates, perhaps in part because we've all had the experience of being creeped on, while also worrying over our own potential for creepiness. Indeed, creep as a designation, as a category, suffers from some uh, capacious indeterminacy. We know it when we see it. Or do we? Is creep a verb or a noun, an activity anyone is subject to engaging in periodically? Or is it a particular identity accruing to individuals, displaying a set of habits, or even just occupying a way of being in the world that is unsettling? We creep on people. We can be creeped out. And sometimes folks are just plain creepy. To get a sense of the range of creepiness, I set up a Google alert on the word creep. And I've promptly received, every day for over a year, a digest of roughly 8 to 10 articles per day that come out using the word. Often, the word creep just designates a slow change, such as interest rates creeping up, or the earlier and earlier selling of Christmas items and the playing of holiday music well before Thanksgiving. But even such usage signals danger, or at least the untoward, something amiss, out of place, something wrong. Once you start looking, creepiness is everywhere often readily on display to castigate behavior we find objectionable, or worse. Many of us get a real dose of creepiness watching shows such as To Catch a Predator, which focuses each episode on a guy, it's almost always a guy, who is lured to a child's home with the promise of illicit activity, usually of a sexual nature. The child, of course, is never a child, but the predators who follow up on their online exchanges by actually showing up for a rendezvous, well, they're all real people who are then confronted, not with the object of their perverse desires, but with a reporter who generally startles them into confessing that they are indeed perverts. Most often, the encounter ends with an arrest. Surely, such predators are creeps. And shows such as To Catch a Predator have spawned a variety of imitators, including some vigilante groups in Canada and the UK who pretend to be children, lure pervs into meeting up, and then either be the crap out of them, call the cops, or both. The proliferation of such creep catching is actually bemoaned at times by various official police organizations who complain that the hobbyist creep catchers often interfere with formal investigations particularly when the lay and official entities are targeting the same creeps. I will admit, even at the price of seeming creepy, that I always feel just a tiny bit creeped out by the whole creep-catching phenomenon. Yes, absolutely, child molestation is a terrible crime. As someone who was sexually abused as a child, 
I can attest to the lasting damage that such assault leaves on the psyches and often the bodies, particularly in terms of body image on the abused. Sexual predators are creeps. But I think that it's also pretty creepy to invite viewers to tune into the vicarious thrill of luring someone, even a predator, into a trap, springing it, watching them squirm, and then delighting in justice served. The difference, of course, is that the latter form of creepiness is sanctioned, so it rarely feels creepy. In so many ways, we have become acculturated to a variety of different kinds of creeping. Multiple news reports about Facebook use the word creep, for instance, to describe the number of things Facebook is doing that will creep you out, or how Facebook live video map lets users creep people around the world in real time. More alarmingly, Governmental agencies are in the ubiquitous information gathering and storage game, with reports steadily coming out warning us that if we think the U.S. monitors your data too closely, then China will really creep you out. While variations on the word creep are deployed here to be alarming, I think it's probably creepier that more and more people are just accepting that such monitoring is increasingly normal. Psychologists even tell us that younger generations grow up expecting less privacy than preceding generations, so that what was once considered creepy might actually be changing over time. With that said, there are some things we can assert confidently about creepiness. At one of the coffee shops I frequent, the boss, probably about 30, regularly comes in and starts talking to his girls, says he's going to watch them while they work, asks them if they are best friends. Watching these interactions, I realize I'm seeing the creepiness of male privilege. He's the boss, so the young women are playing along. And he's a man, so he's probably not even aware that he's being creepy or doesn't care. He could even be showing off a bit, knowing that I'm sitting a few feet away, a regular. He's staking his claim to these young people. But more than that, I wonder what he's really thinking. I catch a glimpse of it, something sexual, but I'm not entirely sure. Is he just fooling around? Or does he have more sinister intent, wanting to use his power over these young people to sexualize the workplace? The sexually inappropriate is one of our most significant creep triggers, one made all the creepier because the intent of the creeper isn't quite known. Indeed, it's the potential for the inappropriate crossing of boundaries that most readily elicits a ping on the creep detector. The creep potential is heightened in certain spaces. As just one among many examples I'll be exploring in this podcast, I could talk about how I visit the same bathroom over and over, a public bathroom near where I work. I've never had sex in it. Of course, never masturbated in it. <laughs> I don't get hard in it. I don't find it arousing in any overtly or even mildly sexual way. But but I love sauntering up to the urinal, always giving dudes around me their space and taking a piss with other people. I acknowledge that to some, perhaps even a little bit to myself, my consistent and self-consciously active visitation of this particular restroom might be slightly creepy. For while I don't intend ever to sexualize overtly the space of this bathroom, I, I do enjoy being around other guys taking a piss. 
the intimacy of is it is exciting. Uh, we're all holding our cocks together. Now, granted, others don't know I'm thinking this, but if they did, they'd likely be creeped out, except for the few who would totally be turned on. And that might creep me out a little bit. For sure, public restrooms are one of those spaces where the possibility of being or becoming perceived as creepy is enhanced, perhaps because it's a public space in which one's genitals are potentially exposed. At the very least, you're holding them for a bit. The installation of privacy screens between urinals oddly attests to a recognition that guys might be creeping on each other, a recognition that seems directly collateral to the rise in tolerance and hence cognizance of the presence of gay men. And guys in general aren't wrong to wonder if the bathroom is a spot that is always potentially creeping toward the sexual. After all, historically, some gays used to frequent public restrooms for clandestine hookups, and too many homosexuals in the past have been arrested for public indecency, their lives often destroyed, when all they really wanted to do was get off together in a society that otherwise didn't provide them any opportunities to meet. Such a legacy is part of the popular consciousness, making a public bathroom a potentially fraught space for straight men. Ultimately, though, it's the fraught nature of a space that might contribute the most to the identification of creepy behavior or people as creeps themselves. We all learn, mostly, how to navigate different social spaces. But when we confuse or mix up behavior accepted in one space with that accepted in another, we run the risk of being creepy. If I tried actively to check out a guy's package in the restroom, I'd be creepy. But so too is the coffee shop owner who is flirting with his female staff. He's being creepy. In the former case, I'd be overtly sexualizing a space where the sexual is supposed to be and indeed has often been literally policed and delighted. In the latter, the boss is sexualizing the workplace and, moreover, taking advantage of his power position over his employees. As we'll see, the sexually inappropriate hovers closely around much identification or perception of creepiness, though it isn't absolutely necessary for a behavior of a person to be identified as creepy. Still, I'm very aware that my gayness has historically, at least, put me in the company of those all too readily identified as creepy, as those who push boundaries, behave inappropriately, and are just downright unnatural. Curiously, that unnaturalness, even the specter of the creepy, is for many not just threatening, but also a little bit exciting. Exciting, perhaps, in the possibility of threat. Yes, we get creeped out. But we're also fascinated by creeps, perhaps in part because we all sense the possibility inside ourselves for creepy behavior. You know, marketers are well aware of this phenomenon, and some have used it, as in this very strange but striking advertisement for diesel shoes, in which an old man creeps down to lick a younger man's footwear. One commentator at the Propaganda for Change blog, which takes a critical look at a variety of persuasive media, readily identifies the old man as creepy. But so too, I'd argue, is the young man, 
using his left foot to push down the older man's neck. And maybe so are we for looking at this ad and potentially finding it somewhat intriguing. Yes, I want my tennis shoes to dominate others, the ad seems to call out to you. Or at the very least, the advertiser suggests that wearing these shoes might empower you, even in a vaguely sexualized way. Surely, sex has been used to sell for a long time. But this, (laughs) this is creepy sex. Apparently, some marketers are willing to bank on it selling too. In part, my stories document this kind of creepiness. They also document how I came to it, how it shapes my sense of the world and myself as a sexual being, but also how it might be at its best a mode of critique. I have few pretensions about this, though. Not all creepiness can or should be salvaged by the possibility of it offering insight and fodder for intellectual consideration. Some creepiness is just creepiness. But I've attempted in these pages, and now in this podcast, to write from my inside, to explore my embodied perceptions, to confront, if not necessarily resolve, emotional conflicts around my own sense of myself as creepy. Put another way, I've wanted to see my inner creep. I want you to see him too, as creepy as that in itself might be. I want you to see him because you might understand yourself better in the process. We all might understand ourselves better if we see our own creepiness. You have been listening to Creep, the podcast. You can find the original book, Creep, A Life, A Theory, and Apology, at its publisher's website, punctumbooks.com. For more information about this podcast and other books related to Creep, check out www.thecreeptrilogy.com. This podcast is directed and produced by Hai Truong. It is narrated by me, Jonathan Alexander. Thank you for listening.